0: Fintech is such a buzzword these days, but few founders break down how they actually created these disruptors in the world of finance. Step forward, Edward Maslavekas, founder of Bud. On today's sound advice, brought to you by Sage, he explains what happens when you invest your life savings in an idea, convince your mate to code it, move back in with your parents to make it happen, and then find it's the wrong idea entirely. This is the true and unabridged story of the founding of a fintech. Ed, how's it going? Thanks for being here. Yeah,
1: very good, thanks, and thanks for having me.
0: And so for our listeners, can you just describe what it is that Bud does? And I know that it does lots of very clever whiz-poppy things, but to break it down into sort of terms that that my granny would understand.
1: Really, the, the reality of what we do is... We take your financial data, your spending data that's in your bank account, and we work with banks to help analyze that data and say, okay, based off of, you know, your spending patterns, you know, what are things that you should watch out for? So if you look at where we started in 2015, the original idea was, you know, we were uh, uh, a new financial app where you could bring, you could pull your bank data into it. And we could give you insights into, how, you know, what your spending is. Any, um, you know, alerts to, hey, actually, it looks like, you know, you've got this upcoming bill that we've detected. You don't, it doesn't look like you currently have cash to cover that. So, you know, just be aware of that. Maybe you need to try and cancel that service, or you need to, you know, move some money into that account. It's, it's really kind of, you know, those simple um, nudges and features and, and 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 things that that we could all need. That kind of financial assistant in a pocket was was the was the original sort of pitch. But what we found when we were building the company was to get there, we had to build this whole infrastructure of, of data intelligence because there wasn't really anything that existed that we could build on top of so um, and then we became a, a business to business, so we started selling that those services rather than giving that service to customers through our app. we, we sold that that service to to banks and other um, banking apps to and, and sort of finance apps to help help just generally anyone that had bank data to, to, to get this assistance.
0: And I, I'm fascinated by that move from the sort of B2C to B2B. And I imagine at points that must have been painful. So we're going to go into that in a bit. But I wanted to start off by talking about how, how you kind of get your head in the finance world, because I know you studied economics. Is that when you started thinking about financial systems, like how you could make a correction, um, the challenges that you saw that how did you even end up sort of moving into this sphere?
1: I guess it's sort of somewhat in your kind of like DNA to, to start your own company. And that certainly came from my dad. He was uh he was always an entrepreneur. He always had this kind of thing of like, if you've got an idea, just go for it. What I found was at the time it was sort of twenty fourteen, there was this was kind of like the first wave of fintechs you had. Um, you know, your transfer wises, your starling banks. Um it was prior to Monzo and I think Monzo was called Mondo then, you know, it's like first year in and and we saw all these guys coming through. And, and luckily at Salesforce, you got this kind of view of, of what's happening in the tech ecosystem, what's happening in the world, because you know it's a huge CRM business. You get, uh, kind of, you get to see kind of these these patterns emergent. And so for me, it was really interesting because there was these really high growth companies coming in at, at my level, which was like the, mo- the smallest kind of businesses that we dealt with, the sort of SMB, they call them small, medium businesses at, at Salesforce and so this huge explosion was happening I'd, I'd moved to dublin and so i had accounts and so, and and uh, accounts in different countries obviously you know people around the world think it's kind of odd ireland and uk different countries but and, and different accounts but yes different accounts different um you know using transfer wise and other services in between to move money and i just you know the, there was sort of two converging ideas so one was hey um why don't I just have all these services together in one app? You know, I know it's in different bank accounts, and also, on the other side was just this real explosion of of fintechs and services, and the kind of the original idea kind of was a was a sort of melding of of those two ideas. So,
0: so yeah, I mean, when you started work on Bud, did you keep your job at Salesforce, and were you kind of building it on the side, or did you say? I'm done here. Paper's in the air. I'm going to start my business now.
1: It was out out of fear. I had this idea. So the the original idea was like um, an intelligent money supermarket where if you you brought your financial data in, we would recommend the right services and products. You could integrate those all together. It's kind of like this utopian idea of like an an autonomous financial app.
0: And a great idea.
1: Oh, great idea. And and, and still is today. but, but, But the technical challenges were vast. We didn't know that going in. Right. So that's kind of what we learned on the way. But but my, my, the, the thing that compelled me, this is kind of odd, I don't know, it's, it tells, probably tells you more about me than, than, than anything else I'll say, is the thing that compelled me the most to go and do it was the idea that, that I had this idea, and maybe it was a good idea, and that I would Google the idea almost like every day, like automated financial system or marketplace banking app, or, and I would Google it and someone would do it. And it's done and it's doing great and i think and i thought god i would not forgive myself if, if i hadn't just tried and so actually it's the same way that actually finally convinced me to, to take my driving test was i kept having these recurring nightmares that i couldn't drive and so it was, it was something about this kind of not doing it that that, that compelled me to, to to do it which is maybe slightly odd but
0: fear can be a really powerful terrifying but powerful way of getting you to move quickly and get things done and um, uh, So did you already have your co-founder, George Dunning, with you at this point, or did you find him later in the journey?
1: Yeah, George and I have been friends for many years. We, we knew each other as kids. Um, we grew up in a town in, in the north of England called Harrogate. Um, and we, I, used to, I used to go around to his house. Um, I hope my mum doesn't listen to this, but I used to sneak around to his house and tell my mum I was going to church. But uh, in fact, I was going around to his house to play computer games. So... <laughs> We were kind of just like little nerd friends.
0: Well, I was going to ask, like, how do you know that the person that you're going to co-found a business with is the right person? But I feel like childhood friend means you know each other pretty well. There's a pretty, like, in-depth degree of trust there. Um, And you can probably be very honest with one another, I imagine.
1: Yeah, and, and look, I mean, it can be great if you get it right. And actually, you know... But equally, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it to everyone. You know, uh, you know, it's hard, and there certainly needs to be a degree of openness, and you need to understand each other's weaknesses, and obviously, you know, have that uh, an open dialogue. But uh, you know, there's there's things about, and I'm sure everyone can recognise this. There's things about the people that we don't work with every day that, that we like to spend time with, right? So what you gain in a, in a co-founder, you, you sort of lose on that kind of like sp- person that you're like. You can't wait to see on the weekend, right? So, so yeah, there, there's um, there's yeah. there's ups and, there's certainly ups and downs. I mean, it's it's worked out for us, thankfully, but it's not yeah, it's not not necessarily easy.
0: Yeah, there's definitely you could say that the startup scene is littered with broken friendships because people went into business together. Oh yeah. And then, so take me back to those early days. Like how crazy was it? Were you working sort of 14 hour days? What was it like? What kind of pace did you have to keep up to actually create the first iteration of this business?
1: Like everything in the startup is, is, I'm sure many people said it's hellish. It's it's, it's really hard. Um, And often, it's hard because you put so much pressure, and you and your your, you know, at some point you you take on like you know some maybe some money from fans, family and friends, and that that adds on to the pressure. But really, it, it's funny because you know we, yes yes we worked super hard and we worked long hours, but it never really felt like that. Like it, we we, um, I would kind of I had this thing I was kind of I would work until. I hated everything I was doing and I just thought everything I was doing was terrible. And that's when I knew I just no longer had the capacity to, to really do anything positive. So I would then go to bed and you'd wake up and Hey, presto, it all feels a little bit better the next day. Right. So, um, yeah, we would work pretty late, but again, you know, we all, the original kind of like group of us of, you know, five, six of us, um, that ended up being for the first couple of years. Um, we were really close and, you know, it was fun and it was hard but you know you 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 could never really repeat that right because it's kind of a, a very sort of special time where it's a, you're you're sort of so excited and you're running off so much adrenaline that you are pushing yourself and of course like you know your health suffers and things like that
0: how long did you have to run at that pace before you saw some traction though because i always think that's interesting to find out like how long do you have to sustain that level of adrenaline fueled like hyperactivity
1: well, it just depends how long how long it takes to get to get to the point where where you you as a founder no longer scale right because you know it's this idea that what you could do is you know you're putting like huge amounts of hours in and you're kind of just you know when when you need to have critical thinking or make a good decision you're just burnt out or you need to take an extra push let's say there's an event that you need to go to or you need to do a talk and and you're and you're just exhausted and there's there's that point right and and so. You know, for us, it was probably about two two years um, because we kind of, we built on very shaky foundations. As I mentioned, we had this sort of utopian idea of, of what we wanted to build. But ultimately, the core technology was so hard to do um, that it was sort of about two years until we started. And, and when we pivoted over to the B2B, and I know we'll talk about it in a minute, um, that's when things started to kind of, you know, you're pushing that, that boulder uphill. And it started to kind of get to that that point where it wasn't just just pain
0: that must have been really hard though when you had to look at your business and try and be kind of impartial about its chances of success and think we have to change something was there a moment that you just thought you know what why don't we just stop trying why don't we just close down or did you was that never an option in your mind
1: um and no it was always an option it was always a, yeah it's always it's always an option you always think hey maybe 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 just not this anymore you know and um but in reality I think the reality of actually doing that um and and sort of giving up um you know maybe foolhardy in some ways right so um you know I see all sorts of people that sort of push to the end and then they realize okay this business isn't going to work let's just let's you know let's close it down and And uh, let's, let's, let's try something else. or let's do something else. Let's change, you know, we're going to change the business. Let's start a new business. That, that, um, that wasn't really in my nature, I think. um, And it still isn't, (laughs) um, but I think, you know, who knows if, which is the, which is the, is the better path. I don't know. I couldn't tell you.
0: But that's not what you did. Instead, you basically completely remodelled your existing business. So how big an undertaking was that? How emotionally wrenching was it to try and like scrap quite a lot of stuff that you'd spent two years working on and then refocus? Uh,
1: I sit here as many years ago now. And I feel like, to be honest, the number one thing, and maybe it came from starting with a group of friends as a business. The number one thing was... Um, You know, there was two things we wanted to do, we wanted to, to, we had this idea that like you could create this kind of automated financial experience and, and, you know, we sort of drew it up on on a whiteboard and we said, look, you know, here's the pros of doing it on our own, you know, masters our own destiny, but here's the cons, like there is, you know, thousands of financial apps out there, everyone's competing to acquire customers. if ultimately what we want to do is automate uh, automate and give people insight into their finances and give give um, businesses the ability to automate their experiences their lending all this kind of stuff if ultimately you know it's this autonomous financial dream that we have um, you know we're more likely to be able to deliver that through other businesses where they have more more data where we can, you know, rather, if we work, rather than, you know, let's say, let's say in, in an ideal world, consumer facing, we become as big as one of the big banks, that would be awesome. Um, and we'd probably be able to deliver some experience, you know, while, while, or very unlikely, we would have a lot of data. However, in the alternative world, what if we worked with three banks and 20 fintechs, we would have more data, right? And, and so, you know, when it, you know, with what we're trying to build, we realized it was a, you know, a data problem of and, and. You know, uh, you know certain methodologies, uh, investment, and obviously with the B two B model, we could really core like invest in the technology versus investing in customer acquisition costs because that's that's where you get into that loop with with, with consumer businesses. You have to acquire customers, and
0: it's expensive.
1: It's expensive. It's hard to scale that. So so that was kind of we drew that up, and it kind of felt like a bit of a no brainer for us. So yeah, I don't remember feeling massively emotional about it. I think some of the team. You know, and, and some people kind of ultimately it really wasn't the thing for them. You know, they and still today, you know, we interview a lot of people, and there's a lot of people that just want to create customer products, and it just takes a different mindset, and I understand it. Um, but I think the core team, we just wanted to go on that mission. We wanted the company to succeed. So, so it was. It was a bit of a no brainer for us. It wasn't wasn't too emotional of a decision.
0: That's really interesting advice. There's always um, an organic growth hack. Like it takes so much time, money, energy to try and build your own community and your own customer base one at a time, laboriously attracting them in. There's always a way that you can kind of channel someone else's community or someone else's data. And that the best businesses now do that—they find the organic growth hack. So that's interesting. That that's that's actually what ended up proving the salvation of your business.
1: Right. It was it was somewhat obvious, right? So in, in 2017, there was this piece of regulation that was announced. Long and short, what it meant was banks no longer owned—you know—could say they owned the, their customers' data. That now customers owned their own data and and could um, move their own data between different apps and banks and things like that. And so then what it meant was rather than these banks and financial apps having these kind of walled gardens where they kept all the data inside, customers could move their data from one place to another. People that were alive to it started to realize, hey, um, if if a customer can move their data to, to any application or service of their choosing, which service will they have their data in? Hopefully, and this was kind of our pitch, was... If a customer has choice, they can move. They can. They don't have to change their bank account. They can move their data, and the application they choose will one that is they find the most helpful. That assists them in the in in in, in, the, in the best possible way. A few banks sort of identified this quite early, and, and they came to us and said, "Hey, look, we like what you've built. Why don't you license it to us?" And so it wasn't just us going, "Hey, we could do this model." You know, people were telling us to do the model, right? So and we said, "Okay, yeah, okay. this makes sense." So, uh, Positive reinforcement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it.
0: Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask like how you found the first fintechs and banks to work with, because especially when it comes to banks, I mean, they can be quite slow moving creatures. I mean, I think because of the explosion of fintech recently, things have changed. But certainly a few years ago, it wasn't always easy to get traction with a big bank when you were a new startup so was it all inbound and that was the kind of that's what got you up and, and running
1: um yeah it wasn't 100% inbound. the ideas were inbound so banks are basically built traditional banks certainly built top to bottom they're they're custodians of risk they manage risk and that that's their culture their culture is to manage risk changes risk and so while we had inbounds It wasn't, you know, the CEO of a bank saying, let's do this tomorrow. It was like, hey, come and have a conversation with us. This might be interesting. Uh, The roadblocks to serve a bank were kind of endless, really, to be honest. This new regulation meant that customers could port their data. But then the bank was saying, yes, but my customer, you know, do I trust you now with like the, you know, we've, you see the billboards, you know, and I think at the same time, uh, banks were advertising, you know, never give your data away, never share your password, all this kind of stuff. And as much as you're not sharing your password with with a service like us, there is that feeling where it doesn't really make sense. And 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 banks banks were the same they were skeptical um about you know sharing their data with a third party, that kind of thing. So there was huge roadblocks. And we managed to pull something off that was, it was pretty crazy and, and it got us like some plot at the time, but our first big customer was HSBC. Uh, sorry. Our first customer was HSBC. Um, and they were obviously the biggest customer. Um, and so we had to grow up pretty fast. We had to put all sorts of policies in place. You know, we had to sort of create our, our systems in a sort of secure way. We almost, we almost built them too securely, almost to the point where we couldn't even access the <laughs> systems, but, but we, these are the things we had to do. Right. So, um, I guess we were selling into many banks. It was kind of my job before was, was sales. So, um, and that was just, you know, if, if anyone you know, wants to try and sell into a bank and is a new fintech, you know, there was no secret sauce. It was just, you know, a, a pretty well rehearsed pitch. I mean, there's thousands of people that work in these big banks. So there's always a meeting to be had. And the idea really was you could get in there you could have a meeting with someone and you know they're, they're not going to be a decision maker not, you know decision a key decision maker isn't going to take a meeting with you, but that might be the boss's that might be their boss's boss's boss right and so you kind of work your way up through that those layers and say this is hey, these bad guys came in it's kind of interesting why don't you take a look and and you know through kind of literally, you know, hours and hours of meetings in different banks, we finally got got somewhere significant.
0: Um, and I want to talk a bit about how you have financed this business, because you mentioned before you started Bud, you were a sort of a junior salesperson. So you weren't on big bucks. Um, and yet you were running at this original idea for two years. So how did you finance that? How did you have enough budget to even create the business in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, so to begin with, I mean, I guess it was just you know, first idea was, yeah, let's go do this business. I'm gonna move back in with my parents. Oh, wow, well, my parents are very supportive. You know, you're 24 and you're just like,
0: <laughs> you uh, live at home. Yeah,
1: I don't wanna live at home. Uh, I was, you know, in London and Dublin before, so, so um, kind of like made an ex- uh, made myself a sort of excuse why I needed to be in London because it was like the center of fintech. So I went and um, stayed on a, a friend's couch. It was actually George's, George's, and my other friend Jamie who also ended up doing the business. Their sofa, um, but they weren't in the business yet. Um, I had to sort of go to the pub with a couple pitch decks over the, the, the course of like six or seven months. Um, so I was sleeping on their sofa. Um, we we were fortunate, you know. We um, I was certainly fortunate. We, you know, like I say friends and family bought into the idea to a small amount. I wasn't paying myself anything really, just enough to kind of get by. And um, yeah, I mean, look. Ultimately, you know, there's there are stories, and I'm saying actually, it's, I want to raise a point. of like you know, um, you know, I'm not from a mega wealthy family, but I'm certainly not from a family that couldn't support me, right? And and I know there's lots of founders that that kind of build it from, you know, and don't have that support around them. But I certainly had that support network and, and that certainly gave me um, a leg up. So that's something to call out, right? Um, you know, that that was really helpful. And and yeah, those are that's why, you know, it's certainly interesting to me, you know, um, trying to help kind of level that playing field out as a founder, because why do we see such, le- you know, low diversity uh, in founders? It's taking that risk, right? I had the support. You know, my parents could put food on the table, like, you know that was that was certainly something that, that helped because you you can't do it on nothing um so and yeah i quit my job and maybe i wouldn't have quit my job maybe i would have done that but then you do also fall into kind of like weird employment law things where your contract says that actually you can't work on this during these times and that kind of stuff so you have to be careful about it. so so that was it but at the same time i was very conscious of like not spending any money we had a you know we had a small amount of money that we had and and then eventually, um, I kind of convinced George to, to quit his job, and, and that was kind of the first time we needed to start spending that money. Was, you know, you know George needed to be paid, and you know just enough to get by. We were kind of three of us living in a in a small apartment, so so it was cost effective. But but yeah, so then eventually we we kept sort of gravitating kind of friends and family in and convincing them that this is a great idea. Once we went B2B, then things started to change a little bit. We had a really clear business model. We had customers lining up, that kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, we didn't go to the moon then, but, but, but it made sense a little bit more from an investment perspective. So we raised our seed round around 2017. But it was co-led between um, Investec that became Outward VC um, and Banco Sabadell, um, who are a Spanish bank. If you go to Spain, you'll see Sabadei everywhere. And so they co-led the deal. That was about £1.5 million. It was just unbelievable and crazy. And um, we didn't have to uh, like fight for payroll for for certainly a few, a good few months, a good year or so. And, and that was really, that freed us up to really you know, focus on the business. That was really awesome. And then we did our Series A in 2019, sort of early 2019, February 2019, we closed it. And that, that was about a $20 million Series A. And then we closed, about a week ago, we closed our Series B, um, which was, deal, the deal was worth around $80 million um, in terms of funding. So it's great.
0: Wow, congratulations. That's like enough money to become quite a big established business. Like that is game changing.
1: Yeah, it, it is. And, and and I think it, you know, it's, the nice thing is ultimately, so, so it was led by a... Uh, TDR Capital, who have kind of a vast amount of portfolio businesses in the UK, and they, um, you know, there's a lot of synergies there, which is really exciting. But but ultimately, the, the nice thing is, as much as you know, we talked about the big pivot, there's lots of small pivots. One of our pivots was realizing that you know we had this real specialty in data and data science, and and we wanted to prove out that model, you know, during COVID and lockdown for the last few years, and we started to prove that out. And I think you know this round is really about, hey, actually, we've got this not just supplying kind of some of the services we were talking about in 2017, but we've got these new services we've been working on. And those are the things that are really starting to scale the business.
0: And you said you learned a lot about um, having co-led investment rounds. And I I, I get the impression that it can be challenging. Do you mind just for our listeners, what makes it more difficult when you've got these like, You've got like a, a dual investor tussle happening in a round.
1: Yeah, and, and with banks and large institutions, it's never just a lead either because every bank has, you know, a lot of regulation. They've got certain things that they need to see for, you know, various reasons. So so that, that becomes a challenge, right?
0: So-and-so says, yes, will you say yes to this? Can we give you the same deal? And then back and forth, back and Okay, I can see that would be time-consuming.
1: Certainly time-consuming. and 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 as of, you know... Inexperienced founder, that was that was quite a, uh, a rude awakening. But like I say, we'd done it before, and we did it again, um, and 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 now you know we can do it again. We have you know a, we have a GC, and we have like quite a robust, we have a re- quite robust organisation. We're just under a hundred people, um, and so that we can handle that, right? But again, if it's you know advice for founders, it's like try and avoid that if if you you know you're value you're trying to value your time and and your kind of uh, mental state because. You've also got everything else to do at the same time, so so try and try and avoid that. But but we, we couldn't avoid that. We, we equally thought these were big institutions. If we had one that was just leading, we didn't want it to be us versus them. We kind of wanted it to be kind of everyone on on somewhat level playing field. So we could we could kind of. Keep some power in in that in that conversation. So that was the thinking, and I, it certainly did pay off. But it, it's harder. It's harder. It's definitely harder to get right.
0: No, that's interesting. Um, and just for listeners, GC General Counsel, a godsend yeah. for a, for any business who can afford one because they're very expensive, but very few <laughs> startups can. <laughs> Um,
1: yes, very expensive. Yeah, <laughs> and Ed, you find a friend that wants equity, you know. Ah, oh, that's
0: um, a good.
1: Or, or a friend of a friend that that understands the value of equity, and and you can hire brilliant mathematicians and engineers, and, and but that's kind of like people just sort of say no, no, no. They don't really understand the equity game. Um, but but when they do, they understand it. So, and 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 they understand it. They see the value. So, getting that right is important. That's how you can save some money. But it's the
0: gamble, isn't it? People often think, I'd rather have a salary that's like a juicy salary than put my faith in this being successful in like five years' time. That's You have to have the right personality and outlook to understand that that could be better in the long run for, for your finances.
1: It could be. It's, it's massively risky, right? And that, that's the challenge, right? Is It's like, you know, what's your mindset? It's sort of, uh, Do you have an appetite for risk? It's the same thing that we see in personal finance with pension, right, it's a, pensions are obviously less risky, but, but the, there's a lot of studies that, that, that basically say that, you know, after a certain period of time, people will reduce the value of their pension to zero. So it's like a three-to-five-year horizon yeah. say, yeah, I've got however much money in that, that pension, but it's worth nothing to me because it's not in the immediate future. It's these kind of strange games we play with mental accounting that we do. So these are the types of things we have to try and when we're designing our systems sort of compete against
0: to get into the neuroscience
1: yeah to get into kind of the behavioral cognitive part
0: on that point about equity you mentioned that you had friends and family backing you in the early days how does that complicate matters when you then going to get kind of vc or private equity investment later on did you have to buy everyone out or because you hear that if you have like loads of people holding a very small stake it can make things quite difficult when it comes to like doing the term sheets and stuff
1: yeah i mean yeah, it just really depends on how you structure, how you structure the, um, the rights of, of the individuals. Um, I got some sort of some quite good advice early on um, about how to structure it. So essentially um, for those friends and family, they're, they're buying into, you know, you and your founding team and the vision. I think for a lot of friends and family, and that's why they're friends and family, they, don't, they didn't necessarily want to interfere, right? So applying the right amount of consent rights to them, so saying, you know, you can vote on their behalf and do all these things, that makes that a bit easier. Um, and so there was never any challenge there because essentially the founding team had full control of the business. We had um, financial stakeholders as friends and family. Um, you know, we're not talking about huge amounts of money, but but, you know... It was basically enough to pay three or four people's wages and, and, a, and a big group of friends and family. And so, yeah, they, they didn't take any sort of control. And I think that's quite important because, you know, you might get into this, this situation like where you've got professional VC versus, you know.
0: Uncle Barry or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, Uncle Barry. And you're thinking, you're almost, you know, you can imagine almost like cringing and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so that, that's an important thing to do, um, just to make sure that, that the rights that you give them Probably reflect what 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 input they're going to be having.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's good advice. Um, and you mentioned you've got like a hundred people now, and this must be such a far cry from when it was just a small gang of you working on um, on this idea. Like, how how did you decide like what kind of leader you would be when you, when you've got that many people who report who are kind of relying on you who are looking for guidance and leadership? Um, how did you kind of mould yourself into someone with a hundred staff, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think they mould you more than um, you mould yourself. I think if you try and mould yourself, I and mean, then you know, I am a proponent of reading all sorts of business books and, and um, ultimately yeah, there's some good tips and advice in, in there. There's like, you know, some things about dealing with, you know, it's always useful to have some sort of a reference book if you've never dealt with something before you can read about, hey, um, you know, you've got to fire a friend as an example what well, you know you think God, how am i even going to start to think wow. about it um and and so so there you know I, I use that example because it's you know one of the worst things you can ever do it's horrible and um you ultimately you need to be true to yourself you need to be your own leader you know you, you're all, there are lots of lots of inputs out there but you if you're trying to fake and be someone else and put on a front it's not genuine and i've seen that in practice and it's not right um so so there's a more degree of, of that. I think you have to identify with your strengths and weaknesses and certainly higher for your weaknesses. Um, obviously, you're trying to address your weaknesses, but you've got to be realistic about them. And beyond that, you know, it's people, right? So treat people as you'd expect to be treated. You know, it's very, very simple. We're told it as kids and it's just... It's just the truth, right?
0: On the point about people as well, because I read that you you said one of your great strengths when hiring was to actually hire people from outside the industry. So not always getting like fintech finance experts. And I thought that was really interesting. So I wanted to know like why that's helped you build a a kind of more engaged workforce.
1: I think there's some bad cultures out there, quite frankly. There's there's some really bad company cultures out there. And and what you really want to do is try and create your own culture. and, And you don't want to you want to do something you're trying to do something different and and new you you don't want to sort of just take people that have kind of grown up in or, or say grown up or learned from very rigid structures that for example they view risk in a certain way you know or you know because risk is is, is a is, is is about compounding uncertainties it's not about a yes or no sort of decision and so you need those kind of people that can take ownership um, and, you know, because we're looking at, you know, the financial world a long time ago, pre kind of the sort of fintech wave. And, and so I kind of think we wanted to do everything quite different um, to how that was. So really today, it was the same thing as before. It wasn't about hiring someone that had done lending before. It was about hiring somebody with a, with, and, and again, it wasn't about hiring, you know, the smartest person on paper because we've done a lot of that and that tends not to work. Um, it You're hiring for a personality. You're hiring for someone who's sort of, who takes account, is accountable, who takes ownership for what they do. Um, you know, ownership when things mess up and ownership when things go well. Um, that can be creative, but, but also, you know, um, they want to get stuff done um, and they can sort of deal with the uncertainty of, of growing a business from nothing. So whether they... Had come from a finance background, they could have done. Um, but you know, mostly it was just sort of people that were s- sort of smart, emotionally intelligent, and and wanted to do stuff um, and wanted to would, would would take ownership that that we wanted to hire for, and and what their background was, whether they went to university or not, when whether they um, yeah. whether you yeah. know whether they worked at a bank or not was was kind of neither here nor there. And I think, you know, we've always got to think about what our hiring superpower is now more than ever, like hiring superpower is is even more flexible than it was before. You know, you can hire it, hire that person anywhere in the world, right? Hopefully, like we're trying to build structures where, you know, we should be able to hire an engineer from anywhere.
0: It's interesting because I've heard from a lot of founders actually who had startup or fast growth businesses and they thought the best thing to do would be to hire a really experienced executive from like a massive rival, like, an F, like just one of these multinational corporations. And the number of times they've regretted it because you take someone who's used to having massive resources, who's used to doing things a certain way and there being certain amounts of process, and then you thrust them into a startup environment and they just flounder and they're very expensive to get rid of. So I had heard, you know, sometimes, sometimes what looks good on paper doesn't work in practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I think about trying to hire, we're a very young team, um, and I always think about this: like, right? do we want to bring in some senior execs, people that've been there, done it before? And I think time and time again, I come back to this point, and I, I, I say this now. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, I've hired some super senior exec. I'm not planning on it, but could might do it. Um, you know, I think it's that person that is like, you know, really fighting for that that uh, for that next position. That's maybe a sort of as you might perceive it, they're, you know, they're uh, a level below um, where you want to hire for, but you can see they have got all the ambition there. They've got the drive. They're hungry for it. They'll do anything to get there. Um, they're in, they've got some frameworks that they've that they've learned from other places. I think those kind of people, you want to bring them in a, a role and say, like, you know, ultimately, you know, you want to be here. You want to get to this next role, let's say, where you're taking a, you know, a, a UK focused team and you want to be managing a... Team across three markets, and and so you know you want to they want to get there, you want them to get there, so they're gonna they're gonna figure that one out. I think that that for us has always seemed like the best value, and seemed like the right culture for us is that person that isn't trying to sit above a team and say I don't do the work, I sit on top of people that do the work, and I and if you throw me into the deep end, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go do the work. You know, take sales as an example. Um, if I'm hiring someone senior in sales I expect them to do their own outreach you know yes they have business development people yes they have marketing but they should be networking you know I'm always on LinkedIn messaging people as is my co-founder we are a bit we're a bit we have a bit of competition of who can do the most outreach and sometimes it might feel weird if the CEO is reaching out to a junior person in the company trying to sell them a product but hey, that's the nature of the game. Everyone needs to be selling here. So But
0: you do have some heavyweights. You've got them on your board though. So is that where you need to have the big names, the people who might not be in the trenches, mm. but they, you know, they, they've been there, done that, got the t-shirt?
1: The, the scariest thing is like the things that you have no clue. There's naivety of doing yeah, things. Yeah, so yeah. that's what they yeah. give us, right? So, you know, if we're entering a a new scenario, maybe it's, do we expand to a new country? Okay, there's this regulatory thing coming up. What do we think of it? You want to turn to some people that have done it a couple of times before. As a, a co-founder, a CEO, or see something, you have more information about the decision you're going to make than they do. But you just want to run it past someone and then ultimately nine times out of 10, they just give you the confidence to, to execute, you know, like Rahman and, and Stanley, really their advisors and their mentors to us
0: just it just kind of pays to keep your eyes open see who you get on with see who adds value and just hang on to the people that really do that's that seems to be great great advice
1: yeah i, I guess advice on on board composition and thinking about board is so i've done this lots of time i've you know had lots of different people on the board over you know all, coming up to eight years now and there's a, it's that it's those people that you can really get along with and i think there is a as a young as a sort of i say young founder as in like you know first time founder and, There's this idea that, like, I need to to be trusted as a business. I need to build a board. I need to build this prestigious board. And I don't necessarily buy into that. I did at the time. And maybe I'm sort of doing that classic thing of, yeah, it worked for me, but, you know, you shouldn't do it. You know, so take that advice with a pinch of salt. But I I I don't know if necessarily, you know, just... Throwing a bunch of names onto a board is the right thing to do. I think you need to be very careful
0: about that. Good advice. And then just one final question, Ed. So the the, the headline, the, the name of this podcast is Get Year One in Business Right. So I'd love to know for all of our listeners who are in that first year, trying not to make mistakes, making loads of mistakes. Is there anything that you remember from your early days in business that you think, I wish I'd known that or I wish someone could have told me to do something a little bit different. Is there one piece of advice that you would share?
1: Yeah. So I often dream about starting another business, not that I don't love Bud, but it's this, the idea that because you make so much mistakes, no matter what you read, it's very difficult to, to, to really, to really kind of put those, that advice into practice. Right. So I, I think ultimately you're going to make a crap load of mistakes. Um and, you know, some of those mistakes might haunt you for years, but you need to forgive yourself and and just keep going, right? I think that's that's the main thing. You know, the thing is, I, I kind of have this idea that if I started another business, I'd I, I've made all these mistakes and I would wouldn't do them again, but I'd make other mistakes, and it would be because I've made these I've made these mistakes, so I would maybe you know not do things I did in the early days, and, and that wouldn't work. So it's very difficult to say anything other than you know just move on, forgive yourself. uh... And 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 you know go to sleep, (laughs) go to sleep because when it when it's when it's painful and feels like nothing's going to work, when you have a good sleep, it it feels possible again.
0: I like that. That's the opposite of the sort of hustle porn, where it's like live on three hours a night, eat, drink energy drinks for breakfast, keep going, keep going. This is like get a good night's sleep, forgive yourself. This is this is I I prefer this approach.
1: Yeah, to use a sports analogy, which I know is a bit trite, but um, you know what performance athlete, whether they're a marathon runner or a sprinter, thinks it's a good idea to be unrested and and, and have poor nutrition and not look after yourself and, and try and go out and perform to you, your peak ability, right? So if you're selling something, um, if you're, you know, business, B2B, you need to go out and be able to pitch a business and and, and look energized and, or, or, and feel energized. Well, I have lots of pictures of me looking in, in a terrible place, um, <laughs> but... But, um, but, and if you're you know, B2C, you've got to come up with some marketing concepts ultimately to, to again sell your product and, and, to, and to sort of have the creativity to take your message and, and get it narrow enough that people understand it and agree with it. And I think that's a creative, both things are a creative endeavor, right? So I think you do need to look after yourself, definitely. That hustle mentality is mental. Sometimes you've got to put it in. But sometimes you gotta, you gotta forgive yourself.
0: Well, Ed, thank you so much for making time for me today, and especially after raising that mammoth round of investment. You guys must be so busy and have so many plates spinning. I really appreciate you making the time.
1: I hope something in what I said is useful to anyone.
0: The excellent Ed is hyper underscore Ed on Twitter. If you enjoyed the show, please go tell him and us using the hashtag Sound Advice Podcast. See you in two weeks for more sound advice.